Welcome back to Movement Matters, a Force perspective of New Testament restoration. My name is Steve Carr. And again, I say this at the beginning of each of these lessons, but if you have found this lesson series on podcast online, there are free resources that accompany this learning that you can take advantage of. And that's on my personal website, www.houseofcar slash movement. That is houseofcar.com slash movement. I might have left the .com out of there. Man, I'm broken today. But segue for lesson five in the Movement Matters series, The Force of Fracture. That's where we're at today. And this is where in the next couple lessons things turn a little bit of dark. We have to look at... Some trying times in the history of the Restoration Movement, but it's part of our history, our legacy, and we need to grapple with that today. So, Lesson 5, The Force of Fracture, Part 1, The First Rule of Fight Club. Conflict is an essential part of storytelling. It's what makes the journey interesting. Without a bump in the road or something to happen, the journey becomes pretty bland, And that's why when we tell stories, we rely on some sort of implementation of conflict resolution to make them interesting. So fortunately for us, the restoration movement is rife with conflict. In fact, some of our greatest events are actually debates. And at the center of these, more often than not, was Alexander Campbell, this influential voice that we've referred to in previous lessons. Yet one particular debate was more important to Roman Catholicism than it actually was to the Restoration Movement. And it perhaps empowered Catholics to become our nation's biggest religious group. So let's go back to the early 19th century. There was a wave of Roman Catholic immigration to the United States. A massive influx of new Americans made some of the native residents frightened. Say, they had lived here for generations, and this newer influx of immigrants were large in number. So they would enter into an area. They would take out a large amount of the jobs. This concerned some of the people who had been in this country for a long time. Also, there was another competing thought within this prejudice, and that was lingering memories of the Revolutionary War. See, just decades before, America earned its victory over a European monarch, defeating the King of England, brought America freedom. But here now, you had another group that was coming in. It almost seemed like the arrival of an army, these Roman Catholics. And Native Americans were worried that they might somehow be dominated by another European monarch. Could it be that the Pope was sending his Catholic army to conquer the United States? And that's actually why many Americans in the early 19th century doubted that Catholics could actually be good Americans. They, they reasoned that if they held allegiance to a pope above everyone else, what would that mean to them in serving America? It meant that they were actually part of another kingdom. So that paranoia led to an outbreak of anti-Catholic prejudice. And you think about it, that prejudice actually continued on until the middle of the 20th century. Many of us, I'm in my mid-40s, I'm 
you know, I, I wasn't even alive during JFK's presidency, but as you look at that from a historical moment, the idea that a Roman Catholic was an elected president of the United States, that was a that was a massive moment within the history of Roman Catholicism in the United States because it had finally come to this point where it had been somewhat normalized. So we look at those early days of Roman Catholicism in the United States and we see that it was not a good time for that. Now, as much as there was animosity toward the Roman Catholics that were coming in, there was some animosity toward the Restoration Movement, not nearly as bad as Catholicism because it flew under the radar because this was also not a movement that was coming in of new immigrants but of natives who were leaving their denominations looking and pursuing for Christian unity and joining this new non-denomination. So – um, since this growth of the Restoration Movement often occurred at the cost of these prominent denominations, there was some suspicion toward the Restoration Movement as well. This is why it's surprising when Protestant religious leaders in the city of Cincinnati approached Alexander Campbell with a request. It started actually 1836. There was a teaching convention in Cincinnati, and Alexander Campbell was speaking. And education at the time was a major issue in those early years of the United States. Specifically, people attending this conference believed that the Bible should be taught in schools. Now, it's funny, you know, century over century later, you know, the idea that, uh, oh boy, we're almost over two centuries later, right? So at this point, a few hundred years after the fact, the idea that the Bible could be taught in school, that seems just, you know, just preposterous. It would not be allowed. But actually, at this point, Protestants were advocating for the Bible to be taught in school. Uh, and even just some nominal Protestants, they believed the Bible should be a textbook. And this wasn't a necessary because of their reverence for the Bible, but as part of their desire to be able to impact the influence of Roman Catholicism. See, because Catholics stood opposed to teaching the Bible as a textbook in schools because they thought it was just an excuse to teach their children Protestant theology. I mean, if, you know, me being in a city that has a big Catholic influence, the number of Roman Catholic education institutions is massive. Maybe it's true where you are as well. But one of the reasons that ad, uh, Catholic education is so pervasive is because of how it was treated in these early days. So th this was quite an issue. So at this Ah, this gathering in 1836, Campbell is there stating his position. There's another man at this conference, the local Catholic bishop, who disagreed with Campbell's views that the Bible should be taught in schools. His name was John Baptist Purcell. He was, he was actually pretty new to the area, but he still engaged Campbell in a conflict. And the two men, they kind of went at each other. Uh, they, they didn't really resolve their argument, but the Protestant leaders of the city, the Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Baptists, they, they were in agreement uh, with Campbell on this issue of education. Of course, they disagreed with his other theological moves, most specifically his view on New Testament restoration. But they were united on their, their disdain for Roman Catholicism. They thought it was one of the greatest threats to Christianity in the United States. And that's why they went to Campbell and asked if he would represent them in a debate against this Bishop Purcell. And the subject of the debate wouldn't be 
the Bible in school, but it would be about Roman Catholicism itself. So debates, right? We all enter into debates. Maybe we're used to presidential debates, and as, as much as those make television, you know, d- the, the concept of debate is not nearly as popular as it once was. Like we're, we're maybe familiar historically with the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which were, were massive at the time, you know, in the middle of the 19th century. But this, this was a very popular thing. They became events in themselves, a chance to argue in a public uh, manner certain positions. And uh, Campbell, through his experience, he had already had different debates underneath his belt. He'd, he'd be becoming a master at it. And because he had already competed in three of them, the Protestant theology, they found some unity, and they asked Campbell, hey, debate this Catholic bishop. So fast forward to the frigid Midwest winter of 1837. When for eight days, Alexander Campbell and Bishop Purcell had a debate that captivated the entire city. Every day that week, their debate made the front page of local newspapers. And after days of verbal jousting, there was no clear consensus who won. Uh, While many Protestants felt that Campbell won, the the Catholics believed that Purcell was successful— uh, boy, you know what? As for me, I kind of side with some of the historians is that Campbell was not successful in this debate that he actually lost. And it, actually, some would say it's the, only, it's the only debate that Campbell actually lost. One of the reasons why is that his goals were incredibly lofty. Like one of the goals that Campbell had in the debate was to prove that the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon from the book of Revelation. Like that's that's just difficult to prove, right? Like it's difficult to prove that anything is the whore of Babylon. And, you know, on the other side of things, which is very interesting, this is what people who were in attendance said, is at the end of the day, Bishop Purcell was just likable. And it's not that Campbell wasn't, but Purcell just had that moxie that made people just like him. He was witty. Um, So it's just fascinating to think that Campbell entered into this debate, something of which he was very familiar, critiqued the Roman Catholic Church, and then mm, some people believe that he lost. Now, what's interesting is he wasn't a sore loser at the end of this debate. He actually maintained quite a collegial relationship with Bishop Purcell over the years. Now, bringing in the Restoration Movement is interestingly enough, but I want you to see what this did for Roman Catholicism because it's fascinating because after this debate, Purcell becomes a hero of American Catholicism. Like people all over the country are starting to notice him, that his perspective of the Catholic religion actually helped to repel some of the attacks from the nativists. And historians cite this debate as a key moment in the growth of Roman Catholicism in the United States. Purcell's performance empowered its growth across the rest of the expanding frontier. So it's interesting that if Alexander Campbell had never debated John Baptist Purcell, the state of Catholicism in the United States might be remarkably different. Um, Maybe it doesn't become such an influential American force. So let me pan out here and make another observation because – Debating isn't necessarily wrong, right? It, it allows us to stand up for what we believe is right and to decry those things that we believe is wrong. However, debating is rarely productive. 
And those types of arguments were called to simplify complex and layered issues. And the goal of the debate is usually to draw together consensus and to do it quickly. Now, that satisfies a sense of urgency, but it almost always increases divisiveness. Debates generally lead people to becoming more entrenched in their pre-existing beliefs than to change their minds. I mean, isn't that correct? Isn't that usually what we see in political debates? Rarely do we see something there that changes how we think. Just generally, we decry who made the most memorable point, and they are usually declared the winner. So this lesson, right? We're in lesson number five. We're discussing the force of fracture, Um I'll be honest uh, about this is that I think you maybe see uh, I, I like to use uh, alliteration as a mnemonic device, right, I, to allow you to remember it. So you've seen probably how I've been using this uh, F alliterative. You know, I, we talked about the force of framing, the force of faithfulness, the force of freedom, the force of finance, right? We've we've had these different forces. So, you know, it's not too predictable that I use fracture here, but I'll be honest is that this was very deliberate. The word choice uh, was intentional because fracture refers to a breaking. I mean, quite honestly, when we talk about fracture, we're talking about the cracking of a bone, right? And, and the cracking of a, a human bone, that's an unnatural, that's a, that's a painful split. And fracture requires extended healing. And, and if you don't treat a fracture well at the outset, it may never fully mend. And I use this intentionally because I think fracture accurately describes what happened in the restoration movement. It underscores a sad reality about our fellowship. See, there's this restoration movement motto. We have all these models, and one that's popular is the motto that in essentials unity and on essentials liberty and all things love. One more time. In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. Now, understand the traditional view of non-essentials in this proverb. It refers to those extra-biblical topics, topics not specifically mentioned in Scripture. Unfortunately, people view essentials and non-essentials with different lenses. So maybe to best understand this, it's important that we examine the most traumatic event in United States history. Through looking at the Civil War we will start to see what tore our brotherhood apart. Part two, politics, religion, and... In the mid-19th century, the United States was deeply divided. Battle lines were drawn along geographic borders. The issue of slavery, which divided these two areas of the United States, wasn't the only thing separating the North and the South. There were sociological differences between the two. The economy of northern states was primarily uh, manufacturing and finance, while the economy of southern states was dominated by agriculture. The North was mostly a society of established cities, while the South was rural. Northern citizens tended to be more educated, more affluent than their southern counterparts. The divide between the culture of the North and the South was just as evident in the Restoration Movement. Note that 
By the mid-1800s, approximately 200,000 American believers identified with the Restoration Movement, and the majority of them lived among border states. Ideologically, these Christians approached their faith differently. Trying to simplify this, right? Northern churches in the Restoration Movement were in the tradition of Alexander Campbell. They held a more intellectual approach to Christianity, while southern churches were more frontiersmen in their view of faith. Essentially, they were like Barton Stone, right? Another division. Northern churches were doing things that had never been seen before in our fellowship. They started to employ paid ministers. They created missionary societies, parachurch ministries to go beyond the work of the local church. And most importantly... They used musical instruments in their worship services. Church leaders in the South questioned the biblical rationale behind these uh, practices, but their northern counterparts, they really didn't care. Southern churches refused to admit that the institution of slavery was immoral So for the northerners, when they're like, why are you critiquing us about our paid ministers, about our missionary societies, about our musical instruments, you support slavery. It should be a non-issue. So even though that loomed large, that tension uh, existed between these two groups of believers, uh, it was never really satisfied until the Civil War. So the tension between northern and southern restorationists seemed to escalate at the same rate that the tension between north and south did approaching the war. And the tempest of the times made it nearly impossible for the restoration movement to find a peaceful resolution to the arguments. So we returned to the city of Cincinnati for yet another convention. I would tell you, I'm from Cincinnati. You think that I'm just a homer about this, but there's so many key events that happened in the city of Cincinnati. Um, October 1861. This was six months after the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter that started the Civil War. Restoration movement leaders had convened to discuss important restoration movement matters. There were attendees from both northern states and some of the border states. Both Alexander Campbell and future President James Garfield were in attendance. There were, however, no representatives from southern states. Now, highlighting how you know this meeting in Cincinnati actually just continued to build tension, some Northerners who were part of the Union Army actually wore their uniforms to this church convention. So one of the highlights of previous conventions was that attendees would vote on non-binding resolutions. Okay, so remember this is that the restoration movement is not a denomination. Nobody can really vote on anything because there's no hierarchy. However, they just decided in some conventions to pass resolutions to make statements. So there will be these statements that people would vote on. In the 1861 convention, there was a resolution proposed demanding loyalty to the United States government. Now, obviously, that resolution was designed to make those Southerners feel as if they were actually traitors, right? The goal was to embarrass 
the Southern Christian brothers. And the, the resolution repudiated the rebellion and all the rhetoric of the Confederacy. Now, even though this is 1861 after Fort Sumter, that resolution did not pass. It's very interesting, right? So they put forth a proposal. They talk about it. It's meant to insult Southern Christians. The resolution fails. Fast forward again. One year later, same convention, same place, 1862. The same resolution is proposed, a loyalty resolution to the United States government. That resolution fails again. But the following year, same place, Cincinnati, in 1863, this convention took place just four months after the Battle of Gettysburg. I don't know if you've been there. I, I, I've actually walked the grounds of Gettysburg. It's just – it's massive. The idea of the death that took place in that battle is just it, – it's just unfathomable today. And you look at that. That is very interesting. The, the loyalty resolution to the United States government was again proposed in 1863, months after Gettysburg, and this time it passes. Now <laughs> – Maybe you didn't even know these resolutions existed in the Restoration Movement. It seems trivial now, right? Because, again, it's a non-denominational movement. Loyalty resolutions carry absolutely no authority. But what it did in that time is it linked this political conflict, this war, to the practice of faith. And the impact of this resolution passing had tremendous reach in the decades to come. So even after the war, Southern restorationists felt that they had been alienated from their northern counterparts. They were labeled in this resolution as sinners just by virtue of living in the south. The resolution – and this is the thing too. Is that we're, you know, when you discuss the Civil War, there's so much revisionist history about this conflict in American history. There are some who try to say that this conflict was not about slavery, but that's nearly impossible to say that the Civil War was not primarily fought about slavery. You know, that's a revision of history. But what I think we need to do – is to glance to the South and see how those believers living there in the war and after the war functioned, right? I, I, I don't think what the resolution was able to do was to account for the burdens of the Southern believers in the Restoration Movement. I like to do this by looking at the life of a Restoration Movement leader named David Lipscomb. Now, his name might sound familiar to you, especially if you're uh, near Nashville, Tennessee. There's a, a large Christian college that is there that bears his name. During the Civil War, David Lipscomb's wife gave birth to a child. But a Union blockade, because the Union Army had control over the city of Nashville at that time, prevented his family from getting the boy to a doctor. And unfortunately, that baby boy died of a treatable illness that could have been cured just with proper medical attention. So Lipscomb was not able to help his son because the Union Army was occupying Nashville. And adding to this, while grieving their death, the Lipskins, you know, being caught in the middle of the war, they had to ask permission of Union soldiers to bury their son at their family cemetery. And we know this through records is that that had a massive emotional toll on David Lipscomb, 
and perhaps it even impacted the way that it helped his um it impacted the way that he saw theology at the time so we go to the year after the civil war ended i told you in the previous lesson the restoration movement was uh, full of these magazines. There was influences there. There was a magazine editor named Moses Laird, and he was writing about the Civil War, but he took an optimistic position concerning the Restoration Movement. He didn't believe the war would have a long-lasting effect on our fellowship. He actually wrote in his magazine, on scriptural grounds, we never can divide. On unscriptural grounds, we never will. Now, Laird seemingly underestimated how that political conflict would impact the faith of believers on both sides of the country, north and south. They, eventually, these issues from the war became indiscernible from theological issues. I mean, just consider the majority of combat in the Civil War took place in southern states. And as a result, much of the region's infrastructure was just destroyed. So among things like Bridges and businesses that were leveled, this included houses of worship. Southern congregations struggled to rebuild their church buildings. They simply did not have the financial resources to to reconstruct their houses of worship. While they in the South are grappling with the loss of the war, the decimation of their land, they're trying to seek faith, maybe even, you know, maybe they were seeking repentance. As they are unable to establish their rhythms of faith, they look to the North. And in the North, the churches in the Restoration Movement flourished. They seemingly flaunted their wealth by building new buildings, even when they already had existing buildings. Southern churches couldn't afford to replace their roofs, while northern churches started to install extravagant pipe organs in their sanctuaries. Generally, northerners felt no pity for their southern brothers and sisters in Christ. They stood behind the principles of that loyalty resolution from 1863. They believed that this was the South's punishment for their rebellion against the United States. And in response, what were Southern restorationists left to do? Well, they could critique the excess of their Northern counterparts. Yet their criticisms of their Northern brothers and sisters wasn't just political but it started to hit to the theological. This is most evident in the North's use of organs, pipe organs, musical instruments, in worship. Church leaders in the South generally observed that the Bible was silent on this issue, and as a result, they held that musical instruments should not be used in worship services. So not only was installing an expensive pipe organ a poor act of stewardship, even more they reasoned, it was actually a sinful act by the northern churches. And that's actually why musical instruments become such a central argument among the restoration movement. This continues for decades after the uh, Civil War through 1889. There was continual fighting between these two sides, and it culminated easy for me to say, right? It culminated when some southern church leaders passed a resolution of their own. 
and they condemned those practices we've discussed earlier, paid ministers, missionary societies, musical instruments. They condemned those practices. They deemed them as unbiblical. And in the resolution, it was urged that anyone who practiced those should be disfellowshipped. Part three. Let's talk about it, baby. Okay, remember the title of part two here. I'm bringing you along. I mentioned politics, religion, and... I will offer you there's an adage that says there are three subjects you should never bring up in public. Do you know this? Essentially, in this lesson, I've only left out one of those because I talked about some politics. I talked about some religious. How do you complete the triad? Yes, you have to talk about sex. Now, when I think of fracture and divisiveness, (laughs) I often think of marriage counseling. As an ordained minister, I still perform a few weddings every year. And when I meet with the couples, I recommend that they go see a licensed counselor. It's important for them at this point in their marriage to talk about their relationship. Now, I, I could do the counseling, right? I've had, a, I've had some graduate courses in counseling. I could do it myself. I can make it happen. Um, but honestly, I'd rather they seek more professional help to navigate through these issues at the beginning of their marriage. See, there's some issues uh, about marriage that are incredibly intimate. Let's just, let's just be on it. I don't want to talk to young to-be-married couples about sex. I have no desire. Right, and that doesn't mean that I don't think the topic is important for young couples. I mean, it's, but it's not the only topic, right? It's just there are more important topics, but it is an important talk topic to discuss. Um, but you know what? Uh, I will, even though I don't want to talk about that. When when I do see couples, I do always offer them, uh, you know, this counsel about one topic because the one thing I want to know beyond, you know, wedding preference, ceremony preferences, about ring ceremonies or, you know, like songs to be sung, things they want included in their wedding, that I always ask a singular question of wedding couples. It's not about sex. I ask them how well they fight because in my experience – I think this is one of the most critical aspects of a healthy married life. It's knowing how to fight well. Specifically, it's knowing how to express your feelings while projecting respect. Like it's impossible to avoid arguments in a marriage, right? As much as two people are in love, over the course of years, conflict is inevitable. So the key is how to keep divisiveness from derailing the entire relationship. So that's why I think of fighting well when I consider this force of fracture. Ours wasn't the only religious group in the United States that divided because of the Civil War. The Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, they all split because of the conflict. So our fellowship isn't any more contentious than other fellowships and denominations, but it forces us to admit a dark truth about the Restoration Movement. Simply put, I believe the Restoration Movement would rather fight than live at peace. From my perspective, that isn't fighting well. 
Though we're a people of the book, I sometimes feel that we're more passionate about our rhetoric. We're a unity movement that is always ready to rumble. But this reveals one of the paradoxes of the Restoration Movement, right? And in order to achieve unity, which is one of the aspects of the plea, right? Biblical authority, church autonomy, Christian unity. In order to achieve Christian unity, we relied on fracture. Our earliest converts came from other pre-existing Christian denominations, right? Almost all of our early founders were part of a denomination, before becoming part of this movement. So the call to Christian unity was actually a call to leave their inferior fellowship. That's why I say we like to fight. We we want unity, but we want it on our own terms. And as a result, the force of fracture is in the DNA of the restoration movement. It's not so much that our defense mechanism is on default. I I believe it's our attack mechanism is easily triggered. Zealots are always prepared to wade into a theological fight. While it seems that their motivation is noble, quite often it's personal. Our readiness to fracture is less about defending the rule of scripture, in my opinion, and more about our desire to fight. I will be transparent with you now. You might be listening to Lesson 5 because you're trying to learn, but I guarantee some people are listening to this uh, this curriculum just to figure out how they can critique it because this is what we do. We like to fight. We might believe that it's rooted in the desire of biblical authority, but quite often it's rooted in the desire for us to be right. So before we fight and before we fracture, we must think less primitively. And I say that intentionally too. The restoration movement was a pursuit of primitive Christianity. That's a noble cause, but it doesn't have to handcuff us in a modern age. I think we're free to acknowledge the complexities of the modern world. I'm not trying to denigrate the people who live before us, but our access to technology through digital innovation, provides us a picture of the world that no other generation has ever had at their disposal. Seeking a simple faith doesn't eliminate the tough questions of life. We can disagree, but still remain orthodox. The common denominator of all this, friends, what is it? It's the flaws of the participants. (laughs) Remember what we said. We are all flawed, and that's why I counsel us to think more humbly. I think it's wrapped up in submission. The Bible reveals that submission is obtained by lowering ourselves, and submission is valuable, right? It's valuable for new marriages. It's valuable as we engage extra-biblical issues. It's so valuable in the Church of Christ. Being submissive, however, doesn't mean that we're apathetic. Being submissive doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice our core beliefs in the process. Again, it's being like Jesus from Philippians 2. It's considering others better than ourselves. It's lowering ourselves and taking a posture of submission. That, my friends, that's the force of fracture. 
Thanks again for joining us in Movement Matters. Hope this has been helpful to you. You need uh, extra resources. You need more information, questions. You know what? Just go to my website, www.houseofcar/movement. You'll find everything you need there. Good to have time with you again, friends. Be blessed.